Chapter 9 of Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England by Charles H. Firth. Chapter 9 army and parliament 1647 to 1648 cromwell joined the army because he wished to prevent the outbreak of anarchy or civil war war was inevitable if the presbyterian leaders were allowed to bring scottish forces into england to suppress the independent army anarchy was inevitable unless the independent army was held in by a strong hand. If Cromwell remained passive, the mutiny would become a military revolution, and a bloody collision would take place between independents and Presbyterians. He could prevent these things only by immediate action. It was too late now to attempt mediation, for with or without his aid the agitators had determined to act. If he would not forthwith come and head them, they told Cromwell, they would go their own way without him. As soon as Cromwell's mind was made up, he struck with swiftness and decision. The king was the key of the situation, and the possession of his person was to either party nine points of the law. His cooperation was indispensable to the success of the Presbyterian scheme, for unless they completed their agreement with Charles, the Scots would not cross the border, the English royalists would not rise, and the citizens of London would not fight. At Homeby House, Charles was guarded by the regiment of Colonel Graves, who was an ardent Presbyterian, and Graves was under the orders of four Presbyterian commissioners appointed by Parliament. The danger was that Graves, either of his own accord or by order of the commissioners, might remove the King to Scotland or to London. On May 31, 1647, Cromwell ordered Cornet Joyce, an officer in Fairfax's lifeguard, to get together a party of horse and to prevent the King's removal from Homeby. About midnight on June 2nd, Joyce reached Homeby and posted his men round the house. Next morning, the troopers of the King's guard threw open the gates and fraternised with his men, while Graves took flight leaving King and Commissioners in Joyce's hands. Cromwell had given no orders for the King's removal, but next day there were rumours that Graves was returning with a strong force to regain possession of the King, and Joyce's men urged him to remove Charles to some place of security in the quarters of the army. Charles, who was offered his choice, selected Newmarket, and leaving Homeby on Friday, June 4th, Joyce and the King reached Hinchinbrook that evening. On Saturday, Joyce was met during his march by Colonel Wally, whom Fairfax had sent to take command of the King's guard and convey the King himself back to Homeby. But Charles refused to return to what he regarded as his prison and persisted in going to Newmarket, where the headquarters of the army were now established. On the same Friday and Saturday, a general rendezvous of the army was held at Kentford Heath near Newmarket, during which Cromwell arrived from London. 
at the rendezvous a full statement of the grievances of the soldiers was presented and all bound themselves by a solemn engagement not to disband or divide till their rights were secured a council was instituted consisting of the general officers with two officers and two privates chosen from each regiment which was to negotiate with parliament on behalf of the soldiers and to represent the army in political matters the experiment was a dangerous one but to limit the functions of the agitators and to induce them to cooperate with their officers was the only way to bring them under control in military matters however the general and his council of war remained supreme and in that body cromwell was the ruling spirit adversaries described the lieutenant-general as the primum mobile and the principal wheel which moved the whole machine under his influence subordination and discipline were rapidly restored and in a few weeks the real direction of the army passed into the hands of the council of war while the general council sank into the position of a debating society no one doubted that this was cromwell's work you have robbed complained lilburn in july by your unjust subtlety and shifting tricks the honest and gallant agitators of all their power and authority and solely place it in a thing called a council of war from newmarket the army advanced toward london parliament promised the soldiers all their arrears and cancelled their offensive declarations but the soldiers now required guarantees for the future as well as satisfaction for the past they insisted on the exclusion of the presbyterian leaders from power and claimed a voice in the settlement of the nation a letter to the city of london signed by all the chief officers but probably written by cromwell himself explained the change in their attitude as englishmen and surely our being soldiers hath not stripped us of that interest though our malicious enemies would have it so we desire a settlement of the peace of the kingdom and of the liberties of the subject according to the votes and declarations of parliament which before we took arms were by the parliament used as arguments to invite us and divers of our dear friends out some of whom have lost their lives in this war which being now by god's blessing finished we think we have as much right to demand and desire to see a happy settlement as we have to our money and the other common interests of soldiers we have insisted upon cromwell asserted that the army had no wish either for a civil or an ecclesiastical revolution but reiterated the demand for toleration we have said before and we profess it now we desire no alteration of the civil government as little do we desire to interrupt or in the least intermeddle with the settling of the presbyterial government nor did we seek to open a way for licentious liberty under pretence of obtaining ease for tender consciences we profess as ever in these things when once the state has made a settlement we have nothing to say but to submit or suffer only we could wish that every good citizen and every man who walks peaceably in a blameless conversation and is beneficial to the commonwealth might have liberty and encouragement this being according to the true policy of all states and even to justice itself 
to cromwell it is evident the acquisition of freedom of conscience seemed more important than any possible change in the constitution of church or state the task of formulating the political programme of the army fell to his son-in-law ireton who had more definite views than cromwell as to the constitutional changes needed arbitrary power ireton asserted in the army's declaration of june fourteenth was the root of all evil the absolutism of parliament must be guarded against as well as the absolutism of the king and parliamentary privilege might become as dangerous to popular liberties as royal prerogative had been the way to make the rights of the people secure was to make parliament more really representative henceforth the demand for the speedy termination of the existing parliament was accompanied by demands for equalization of the constituencies short parliaments and the vindication of the right to petition the long parliament was not disposed to accept such democratic changes but it was obliged to temporize news came that the ten thousand men of the northern army under general points were on the verge of mutiny and ready to join the forces under fairfax the eleven presbyterian leaders impeached by the army saved the dignity of the house by a voluntary withdrawal and negotiations were opened at wickham on july first after a fortnight of negotiating the agitators murmured at the delay and urged the immediate resumption of the march on london and the enforcement of their demands cromwell and the higher officers opposed whatsoever we get by a treaty argued cromwell will be firm and durable it will be conveyed over to posterity the friends of the army were daily gaining ground in the house what we and they gain in a free way is better than twice so much in a forced way and will be more truly ours and our posterities that you have by force i look upon as nothing i do not know that force is to be used except we cannot get what is for the good of the kingdom without it in cromwell's opinion it would be sufficient peremptorily to demand certain concessions as a guarantee that the treaty was seriously meant and to leave the terms of the political settlement for negotiation above all things it was essential that the army should be united you may be in the right and i in the wrong but if we be divided i doubt we shall both be in the wrong cromwell's plan was adopted and the long parliament yielded all preparations for armed resistance were abandoned parliament appointed fairfax commander-in-chief of all the forces in england including those lately under general points it disbanded all the soldiers it had enlisted to oppose fairfax it restored the control of the london militia to the old committee which the army trusted in place of the exclusively presbyterian committee appointed in the spring but if parliament saw the necessity of yielding london did not on july twenty first crowds of citizens signed an engagement for the maintenance of the covenant and the restoration of the king on his own terms though both houses united in denouncing their engagement on the twenty sixth crowds of apprentices and discharged soldiers besieged the houses 
and threatened their members with violence unless the command of the city forces were given back to the Presbyterians. The Lords gave way first. The Commons resisted some hours longer, but in the end they too obeyed the mob and repealed their votes. The rioters also extorted from them a vote inviting the King to London. After this, both houses adjourned till the 30th of July, but before that day came, the two speakers, followed by eight peers and fifty-seven members of the Commons, had taken refuge with the army, declaring that Parliament was not free, and the army, pledged to restore the freedom of Parliament, was marching on London. The Presbyterians prepared to fight, and placed the forces of the city under the command of Major General Massey. The eleven impeached Presbyterian leaders took their places in Parliament again, assumed the direction of the movement, and appointed a committee of safety. But citizen militia and undisciplined volunteers would have stood a poor chance against the veterans of Naseby. Even the fanatical mob of the city knew it, and when Fairfax arrived at Hounslow with twenty thousand men, their courage fell to zero. Crowds gathered outside Guildhall, where the city fathers were deliberating whether to fight or yield. When a scout came in and brought news that the army made a halt or other good intelligence, they cried, One and all! But if the scouts brought intelligence that the army advanced nearer to them, then they would cry as loud, Treat! 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 On August 4th, London submitted unconditionally, and two days later the army escorted the fugitive members to Westminster and made a triumphal progress through the city. The agitators talked loudly of purging the House of Commons by expelling all members who had sat during the absence of the speakers, but Cromwell and the officers contented themselves with demanding that the proceedings of the last ten days should be declared null and void. Even this could not be obtained till Cromwell threatened to use force, and drew up a regiment of cavalry in Hyde Park to give weight to his arguments, for the Presbyterians were still a majority in Parliament, though their leaders had now fled to the continent. The army now rested its hopes on the King, rather than on the Parliament. During the march on London it had published its proposals for clearing and securing the rights of the Kingdom and settling a just and lasting peace. The heads of the proposal, like the Newcastle propositions, demanded that for the next ten years Parliament should have the control of the militia and the appointment of officers of state, but they were more lenient to the King's party. Royalists were to be for a time incapacitated from office, but their fines were to be reduced, the number of exceptions from pardon diminished, and a general amnesty passed. Besides these temporary measures of security, there were to be three permanent changes in the Constitution. The religious settlement was to be based on toleration, not on the enforcement of Presbyterianism. No man was to be obliged to take the covenant. Bishops and ecclesiastical officials were to be deprived of all coercive power. And the statutes enforcing attendance at church or use of the prayer book, were to be abolished. In future, the royal power was to be limited by the institution of a council of state, which would share with the king the control of the military forces 
and the conduct of foreign affairs. Parliaments were to meet every two years, to sit for a limited space of time, and to be elected by more equal constituencies, while the existing Parliament was to end within a year. Arton was the chief author of these proposals, but Cromwell was equally eager for an agreement between the army and the king. Whatever the world might judge of them, said Cromwell to one of the king's agents, the army would be found no seekers of themselves further than to have leave to live as subjects ought to do, and to preserve their own consciences, and they thought no men could enjoy their lives and estates quietly without the king had his rights. When Charles raised objections to the first draft of the proposals, Cromwell and Ireton persuaded the council of the army to lower their demands, and to make important alterations in the scheme finally published. If the king accepted it, the army leaders assured him that no further concessions should be demanded, and supposing that after he had accepted it, Parliament refused its assent, they would purge the houses of opponents till they had made them of such a temper as to do his majesty's business. Such was the talk amongst the officers, but it soon became evident they had reckoned without their host. The king was little inclined to submit to the permanent restrictions on his royal power which the army demanded, and thought he could avail himself of the quarrel between it and the parliament to impose his will on both. He avowed it frankly. You cannot do without me. You will fall to ruin if I do not sustain you, he told the officers, when the proposals were first offered to him. Sir, answered Ireton, you have an intention to be the arbitrator between the Parliament and us, and we mean to be it between your Majesty and the Parliament. Another time Charles answered Ireton's remonstrances with a defiant announcement, I shall play my game as well as I can. If your majesty have a game to play, replied Ireton, you must give us also the leave to play ours. They could come to no agreement. Charles persisted in his policy of playing off one party against another, confident that his diplomatic skill would secure his ultimate victory. In September, the Parliament once more offered the king the Newcastle propositions, to which he answered that the proposals, of the army offered a better foundation for a lasting peace, and asked for a personal treaty. The advanced party amongst the independents, headed by Harry Martin and Colonel Rainsborough, urged that Parliament should proceed to the settlement of the kingdom without consulting the king. They compared Charles to Ahab, whose heart God hardened, and to a Jonah who must be thrown overboard if the ship of the state was to come safe to port. Cromwell, backed by Ireton and Vane, argued in favour of a new application to the king, and by eighty-four votes to thirty-four, the House decided to draw up fresh propositions. It seemed to Cromwell that the re-establishment of monarchy was the only way to avoid anarchy. Already an officer had been expelled from the Council of the Army for declaring that there was now no visible authority in England but the power of the sword, and Cromwell warned Parliament that men who thought the sword ought to rule all were rapidly growing more numerous amongst the soldiers. He argued that a speedy agreement with the king was necessary, but to persuade the Parliament to reduce its demands proved beyond his power. 
the new terms it proceeded to draw up showed no sign of any willingness for a compromise as before all the leading royalists were to be excluded from pardon the establishment of presbyterianism for an indefinite period was once more insisted upon and toleration was refused not only to catholics but to all who used the liturgy cromwell's efforts to limit the duration of presbyterianism to three or to seven years were unsuccessful parliament was as impracticable as the king and while it was fruitlessly discussing proposals which could produce no agreement the progress of the democratic movement in the army threatened a new revolution cromwell's negotiations with the king his speeches in favour of monarchy his modification of the terms offered by the army to charles and his attempt to moderate the terms offered by parliament all exposed him to suspicion while charles distrusted cromwell and ireton because they asked for no personal favours or advantages for themselves both were freely accused of having made a private bargain with the king for their own advancement cromwell it was said was to be made earl of essex as his kinsman had been captain of the king's guard and a knight of the garter ireton was to be lord lieutenant of ireland royalists spread these stories in order to sow division between cromwell and the army the soldiers swallowed them because they feared the restoration of the monarchy pamphleteers of the levellers as the extreme radicals were popularly termed published broadcast vague charges of treachery and double-dealing against the army leaders sometimes cromwell was described as an honest man led astray by the ambitious ireton at other times the two were regarded as confederates in evil whose occasional differences of opinion were merely a device to throw dust in the eyes of the world in their appeals to cromwell there was a touch of surprise and sorrow o oh, my once much honoured cromwell wrote wildman can that breast of yours the quondam palace of freedom harbour such a monster of wickedness as this regal principle while wildman hoped to waken cromwell's conscience from the dead lilburn confessing that his good thoughts of cromwell were not yet wholly gone threatened to pull him down from his fancied greatness before he was three months older these attacks shook the confidence of the soldiers in their chiefs and fanned the sparks of discontent into a flame the agitators once ardent for an agreement with the king began to demand the immediate rupture of the negotiations with him let the army said they take the settlement of the nation into its own hands since neither their generals nor the parliament could accomplish it in october five regiments of horse cashiered their old representatives as too moderate elected fresh agents and laid their demands before fairfax the existing parliament was to be dissolved within a year and in future there were to be biennial parliaments equal constituencies and manhood suffrage nothing was said of king or house of lords but the abolition of both was tacitly assumed a declaration accompanied this draft constitution by which freedom of conscience freedom from impressment and equality before the law were asserted to be the native rights of every englishman rights which no parliament or government had power to diminish or to take away the officers had proposed a more limited monarchy an adaptation of the old constitution to the new conditions which the civil war had created 
what the soldiers demanded was a democratic republic based on a written constitution drawn up in accordance with abstract principles new to english politics the soldiers asked that their scheme which they termed the agreement of the people should be at once submitted to the nation for its acceptance parliament was to be set aside by a direct appeal to the people as the only lawful source of all political authority against this cromwell and ireton protested the army they said had entered into certain engagements in its recent declarations to the nation and the pledges made in them must be observed both declared that unless these public promises were kept they would lay down their commissions and act no longer with the army equally strong were their objections to some of the principles which the agreement contained and the method in which it was proposed to impose it upon the nation this paper said cromwell doth contain in it very great alterations of the government of the kingdom alterations of that government it hath been under ever since it was a nation what the consequences of such an alteration as this would be even if there were nothing else to be considered wise and godly men ought to consider the proposed constitution contained much that was specious and plausible but also much that was very debatable and while they were debating it other schemes equally plausible might be put forward by other parties and not only another and another but many of this kind and if so what do you think the consequences of that would be would it not be confusion would it not be utter confusion would it not make england like switzerland one canton of the swiss against another and one county against another and what would that produce but an absolute desolation to the nation i ask you he concluded whether it be not fit for every honest man seriously to lay that upon his heart moreover not only the consequences but the ways and means of accomplishing a thing ought to be considered granted that this was the best possible constitution for the people of england still the difficulty of its attainment was a very real objection i know said he a man may answer all difficulties with faith and faith will answer all difficulties where it really is but we are very apt all of us to call that faith which perhaps may be but carnal imagination and carnal reasoning faith could remove mountains but give me leave to say there will be very great mountains in the way of this cromwell's mention of difficulties called up colonel rainsborough the leader of the democratic party amongst the officers if ever we had looked upon difficulties cried rainsborough i do not know that ever we should have looked an enemy in the face let difficulties be round about you though you have death before you and the sea on each side of you and behind you if you are convinced that the thing is just i think you are bound in consequence to carry it on and i think at the last day it can never be answered to god that you did not do it for it is a poor service to god and the kingdom to take their pay and to decline their work perhaps answered cromwell with quiet dignity we have all of us done our parts not affrighted with difficulties one as well as another and i hope all purpose henceforward to do so still i do not think that any man here wants courage to do that which becomes an honest man and an englishman to do but we speak as men that desire to have the fear of god before our eyes and men that may not resolve to do that which we do in the power of a fleshly strength 
but to lay this as the foundation of all our actions, to do that which is the will of God. When it came to a discussion of the details of the proposals, the fiercest debate arose on the question of manhood suffrage. Every man born in England, argued Rainsborough, the poor man, the meanest man in the kingdom, ought to have a voice in choosing those who made the laws under which he was to live and die, was a natural right, part of every Englishman's birthright, and part of the liberty for which the soldiers had shed their blood. It was the ground that we took up arms, said one of them, and it is the ground which we shall maintain. Ireton answered that to give a vote to men who had no stake in the country would endanger both liberty and property. Logically, he argued, the theory of natural rights implied a claim to property as well as a claim to political power. Cromwell, while agreeing that universal suffrage did tend very much to anarchy, dismissed abstract principles altogether and expressed his willingness to assent to a reasonable extension of the franchise. Next came a struggle on the question of the king and the lords. Cromwell protested that he had no private pledges to either and no wish to preserve them if their preservation was incompatible with the safety of the nation. The Democratic Party in the Council held that both the monarchy and the upper house must be abolished, and that their attention in any shape was dangerous. Cromwell's view was that at present, considering its public engagements, the army could not with justice and honesty either abolish them or set them aside, and therefore he desired to maintain both so far as it could be done without hazard to the public interest. Some boldly asserted that the power of king and lords was part of that Babylon which God would destroy, and pleaded their own convictions to that effect as a revelation from heaven. Cromwell replied with a warning against imaginary revelations. Like them, he said, he believed in the fulfilment of the prophecies in the Bible. I am one of those whose heart God hath drawn out to wait for some extraordinary dispensations, according to those promises that he hath held forth of things to be accomplished in the later times, and I cannot but think that God is beginning of them. He was inclined to agree with those who held that God would overthrow king and lords, yet let them not make those things a rule to them which they could not clearly know to be the mind of God. Let them not say, This is the mind of God, we must work to it. If it was God's purpose to destroy the power of king and lords, he could do it without necessitating the army to dishonour itself by breaking its engagements. Let them wait for God's time and do their plain immediate duty. Surely what God would have us do, he does not desire we should step out of the way for it. In these discussions, Fairfax was absent or silent. Ireton's readiness in debate and knowledge of constitutional law and political theory made him the spokesman of the superior officers. He had a firm grasp of the principles involved, possessed great logical acuteness, and spoke with clearness, vigour, and even eloquence. But he was too dogmatic and too unconciliatory to convince opponents. With less dialectical skill, and much less facility in expressing himself, Cromwell was an infinitely more effective speaker. What distinguished his speeches was an unfailing moderation and good sense, which even the visionaries and demagogues whom he combated were forced to acknowledge. Neither religious nor political formulas blinded him to facts, 
avowing that the good of the people was the proper end of government, and admitting that all political power was properly derived from the people, he denied the conclusion of the Democrats that a republic was the only legitimate government for England. At the very outset of these debates, he laid down the rule that in proposing any important political change, the first thing to consider was whether the spirit and temper of the people of this nation are prepared to go along with it. For that reason, he declared his preference for monarchy. In the government of nations, that which is to be looked after is the affections of the people, and that I find which satisfies my conscience in the present thing. The particular form of government seemed to him quite unimportant compared with its acceptability to the people. Consider, he argued, the example of the Jews. They were governed successively by patriarchs, by judges, and by kings, and under all these different kinds of government they were happy and contented. Moreover, there were things more important than the civil government of a state. Even if you change the government to be the best possible kind of government, it is but a moral thing. Less important, Cromwell meant, than religious freedom. It is but, as Paul says, dross and dung in comparison with Christ. Why then should they contest so much for merely temporal things? If every man in the kingdom should insist on fighting to realise what he thought the best form of government, I think the state will come to desolation. In the background of Cromwell's mind, there was always this desire to avoid a new civil war and this dread of anarchy. It determined him now to put a stop to the spread of insubordination amongst the soldiers and to limit the political action of the army to a minimum. Without obedience to its officers, he declared, the army would cease to exist. It was intolerable that private men, such as the agents were, should take upon themselves to issue orders and call a rendezvous of a troop or a regiment. This way is destructive to the army and to every man in it. I have been informed by some of the king's party that if they give us rope enough, we shall hang ourselves. Soldiers must obey their officers. Officers must submit to the decisions of Parliament. The army should leave Parliament to decide what government was fittest for the nation, and content itself with requiring that Parliaments should be fairly elected, frequently summoned, and dissolved in due season. As it needed the support of some civil authority, it must own the authority of Parliament. For his own part, he added, he would lay hold of anything if it had but the face of authority, rather than have none. The struggle in the council lasted nearly a fortnight, but in the end Cromwell prevailed. The agreement of the people was converted into a series of proposals to be offered to Parliament, instead of being accepted as a constitution to be imposed on people in Parliament. The demand for universal suffrage became a request for the extension of the franchise. Monarchy and the House of Lords were not to be swept away altogether, but henceforth limited in authority and subordinated to the House of Commons. The old constitution was to be preserved and amended, but not superseded by a new one. By this time, however, even those officers who were anxious to retain the monarchy had begun to doubt whether it was possible to retain the king. For some weeks past, their negotiations with Charles had been completely broken off, and distrust of his sincerity had become general. It was well known that he was intriguing with the commissioners who had lately arrived in England from the Scottish Parliament 
and very little was expected from the propositions which the English Parliament was preparing to send to him. The Democratic Party, the Levellers, as they were now termed, were demanding not only his dethronement, but his punishment. On November 11th, 1647, Colonel Harrison, in a committee of the Council of the Army, denounced the King as a man of blood whom they ought to bring to judgment. All Cromwell said in reply was that there were cases in which, for prudential reasons, the shedder of blood might be allowed to escape unpunished. David, for instance, had allowed Joab to escape the penalty due for the murder of Abner, lest he should hazard the spilling of more blood. In regard, the sons of Zeruiah were too strong for him. If the king deserved punishment, he concluded, it was rather the duty of Parliament than the army to do justice upon him. In any case, Cromwell was resolved to keep the king safe from the threatened attempts of the levellers against his life. I pray have a care of your guard, he wrote to his cousin Colonel Wally, for if such a thing should be done, it would be accounted a most horrid act. The same night the king escaped from the custody of Colonel Wally at Hampton Court, and on November 15th news came that he had reached Carisbrook Castle in the Isle of Wight. Contemporary pamphleteers and memoir writers often put forward the theory that Cromwell frightened the king into this flight from Hampton Court in order to forward his own ambitious designs. This is the view expressed in the well-known lines of Marvell, which relate how, twining subtle fears with hope, he wove a net of such a scope as Charles himself might chase to Carisbrook's narrow case, that thence the royal actor born the tragic scaffold might adorn. There is no evidence in support of this theory. In the long run, the king's flight was one of the causes of his dethronement and execution, and so of Cromwell's elevation to supreme power. At the moment, it increased Cromwell's difficulties and added to the dangers which beset the government. At Hampton Court, the king was in the safe hands of Colonel Wally, Cromwell's cousin, who could be relied upon to observe the orders of the general. At Carisbrook, he was in the hands of Colonel Hammond, a connection, indeed, of Cromwell's by his marriage with a daughter of John Hampton, but a man as to whose action under the great temptation of the king's appeal to his loyalty, Cromwell was painfully uncertain. Cromwell's letters to Hammond prove this. For the next six weeks, the question whether Hammond would obey Firefax and the Parliament, or allow Charles to go where he chose, remained unsettled. The real cause of the king's flight was his intrigue with the Scottish commissioners. In October, they had promised him Scotland's assistance in recovering his throne if he would make satisfactory concessions about religion. But the one thing essential to the completion of the bargain was that Charles should escape from the hands of the army and be able to treat freely. The plan for the king's flight was arranged early in November. The Scots urged him to take refuge at Berwick. He thought of Jersey, but preferred to remain in England. Finally, he determined on the Isle of Wight at the suggestion of one of his attendants, who believed Hammond to be a royalist at heart. Safe in the Isle of Wight, Charles thought he could negotiate with Parliament, Scots and officers, and accept the terms offered by the highest bidder. If negotiation failed, escape to France would not be difficult. For six months, Charles had succeeded in playing off Parliament against Army, and Army against Parliament but the result had been to make him thoroughly distrusted by both, 
and his flight from Hampton Court united them against him. The king had hoped much from the divisions of the army, but simultaneously with his arrival at Carisbrook, Cromwell and Fairfax reduced their troops to obedience again. On November 8th, Cromwell carried a vote for the temporary suspension of the sittings of the council, and sent agitators and officers back to their regiments. A week later, Fairfax held a general review of the army, dividing it into three brigades, which met at three different places. At each review, he solemnly engaged himself to the soldiers to stand by them in securing the redress of their military grievances and the reform of Parliament, exacting from them in return a signed pledge to obey the orders of the general and council of war. At the first rendezvous, which took place near Ware on November 15th, there was some opposition. The levellers tried to convert it into a general demonstration in favour of the agreement of the people. Two regiments came there unsummoned, wearing the agreement of the people in their hats, with the motto, England's Freedom, Soldiers' Rights. They had driven away their own officers, called on other regiments to do the like, and planned the seizure of Cromwell as a traitor to the cause of the people. But when he rode up to the mutineers, none dared to lay hands on him. Lieutenant General Cromwell's carriage, with his naked waved sword, daunted the soldiers with a paper in their hats, and made them pluck it out and be subject to command. One soldier was tried and shot on the field. Others, including several officers, were reserved for the judgment of a future court-martial. On November 19th, Cromwell was able to report to Parliament the army was very quiet and obedient, and received the thanks of the commons for his services. Meanwhile, the king sent a message to Parliament from the Isle of Wight, offering various concessions and asking to be admitted to a personal treaty at London. He applied also to the army leaders, urging them to support his request, to which they coldly replied that they were the Parliament's army and must refer those matters to it. Parliament, equally distrustful of Charles, answered his overtures by drawing up an ultimatum, consisting of four bills, to which his assent was required before any treaty should begin. Their chief demand was the direct control of the militia for the next twenty years, and a share in its control when that period ended. Other constitutional questions might be left to discussion, but they must make sure that the king could never use force to impose his will upon the nation. Driven to extremity by this demand, Charles turned once more to the Scottish commissioners who had now arrived at Carisbrook. He found them ready enough to sacrifice the liberties of Englishmen, and they promised him restoration to all the rights of his crown in return for the three years' establishment of Presbyterianism in England, the rigid suppression of independence and other heretics, and certain privileges for Scotland and the Scottish nobility. If Parliament refused to disband its forces and to treat with the King in London, an army was to cross the border and replace Charles on his throne. December 27th, 1647. The engagement, as this treaty was termed, was wrapped in lead and buried in the castle garden till it could be safely smuggled out of the island. The next day, the King definitely rejected the ultimatum of the English Parliament and prepared to effect his escape to the continent. It was too late. As soon as the king's answer was delivered, 
his guards were doubled, and he was made a close prisoner. The two houses were well aware that his refusal of their terms was due to some agreement with the Scots, although they were ignorant of its precise nature. The House of Commons, wrote Cromwell to Hammond, is very sensible of the King's dealings and of our brethren's in this late transaction. You should do well, if you have anything that may discover juggling, to search it out and let us know it. It may be of admirable use at this time, because we shall, I hope, go upon business in relation to them, tending to prevent danger. On January 3rd, 1648, the House of Commons voted that they would make no further addresses to the King and receive no more messages from him. Cromwell and Ireton, who had opposed a resolution to that effect, which Martin had brought forward in the previous September, now spoke earnestly in its favour. It was now expected, said Cromwell, that the Parliament should govern and defend the kingdom by their own power, and not teach the people any longer to expect safety in government from an obstinate man whose heart God had hardened. In such a policy, he added, the army would stand by the Parliament against all opposition, but if the Parliament neglected to provide for its own safety and that of the nation, the army would be forced to seek its own preservation by other means. Events had thus driven Cromwell to be the foremost advocate of that policy of completely setting aside the king, which he had long so stubbornly opposed. Yet, though convinced that the king could not be trusted, he was not prepared to abandon monarchy. At a conference on the settlement of the government, which took place early in 1648, the Commonwealth's men, as the Republicans were termed, pressed for an immediate establishment of a free Commonwealth and the trial of the King. Ludlow noted with great dissatisfaction that Cromwell and his friends kept themselves in the clouds and would not declare their judgments either for a monarchical, aristocratic or democratic government, maintaining that any of them might be good in themselves or for us, according as providence should direct us. When he pressed Cromwell privately for the grounds of his objection to a republic, Cromwell replied that he was convinced of the desirableness of what was proposed, but not of the feasibility of it. There is evidence that during the spring of 1648 the independent leaders discussed the scheme for deposing Charles I and placing the Prince of Wales or the Duke of York upon the throne. But the unwillingness of the Prince and the escape of the Duke to France frustrated this plan. While seeking to find some compromise which would prevent a new war, Cromwell endeavoured to unite all sections of the Parliamentary Party to meet it, if it came. The reunion of the army had already been effected. It was completed in a series of council meetings held at London during December 1647, in which the officers under arrest for insubordination were pardoned, and a personal reconciliation took place between Cromwell and Rainsborough. In February and March 1648, Cromwell made conciliatory overtures to the Presbyterians of the city, but as nothing short of the restoration of the king to his authority would content them, the negotiations failed. As little could Cromwell succeed in overcoming the distrust and hostility which the advanced party amongst the independents now felt towards him. On January 19, 1648, John Milburn, at the bar of the House of Lords, publicly accused him of high treason. Nor was it only his dealings with the King that made him the object of suspicion. During the last year, his political attitude had continually altered. In April, he had urged the army to disband peaceably, 
in June he had headed its revolt. In November he had forced it into obedience to the Parliament again. And besides his apparent inconsistency, he was notoriously indifferent to principles which levellers and commonwealth's men held all-important. To them a republic meant freedom and a monarchy bondage. For him the choice between the two was a question of expediency and dependent upon circumstances. In open council he had declared that he was not wedded or glued to forms of government, and in private he was said to have avowed that it was lawful to pass through all forms of government to accomplish his ends. It was not surprising, therefore, that men to whom his opportunism was unintelligible thought self-interest or ambition the natural explanation of his conduct, and that charges of hypocrisy and apostasy were freely made against him. Through this cloud of detraction Cromwell pursued his way unmoved. Sometimes he answered his accusers with blunt defiance. If any man say that we seek ourselves in doing this, much good may it do him with his thoughts. It shall not put me out of my way. At other times he referred to these slanders with a patient confidence that justice would be done to him in the end. Though it may be, he wrote in September 1647, for the present a cloud may lie over our actions to those not acquainted with the grounds of them. Yet we doubt not but God will clear our integrity from any other ends we aim at but his glory and the public good. Neither loss of popularity, misrepresentations, nor undeserved mistrust could diminish Cromwell's zeal for the cause. I find this only good, he wrote on his recovery from a dangerous illness in the spring of 1648, to love the Lord and his poor despised people, to do for them, and to be ready to suffer with them, and he that is found worthy of this hath obtained great favour from the Lord. Not Cromwell's utterances only, but his acts testify to the integrity of his motives. In March 1648, Parliament settled an estate upon him as a reward for his services, to which he responded by offering to contribute a thousand a year, out of the seventeen hundred it brought in, to be employed in the recovery of Ireland. And so little did he dream of ever becoming himself the ruler of England, that at the very moment when fortune had opened the widest field to ambition, he began negotiations for the marriage of his eldest son to the daughter of a private gentleman of no great influence or position. End of chapter 9